You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is also brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Matthew, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Long John Sterling, Bull, Vertigon, Conifal Ende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. There is virtue, or depending on how you look at it, perhaps there is vice, to be found in being the first person to complete a great undertaking. It brings you notoriety and fame. Oftentimes it will bring you wealth or power. Think about the greatest explorers and adventurers in history. Who comes to mind? For me, it's people like Marco Polo and Christopher Columbus, maybe Ferdinand Magellan or Neil Armstrong. Now, one and all, these people are famous for... Well, what are they famous for exactly? Oftentimes, it's for being the first to complete their great adventure. Marco Polo is often thought of, and even sometimes taught, as being the first European to travel to Asia, or at least to China. Of course, he wasn't. Pope Innocent IV had sent papal envoys to treat with the Mongols just a few years earlier, and at least a century earlier there were Jewish merchants from Europe who were trading with the Chinese. And that's to say nothing of the Byzantine diplomats or Roman envoys or even, you know, Alexander the Great invading India. But Marco Polo was the first European to reach China and then write a best-selling book on the subject, so... He gets the fame while all of those other merchants and diplomats fade away. Now, Christopher Columbus is more famous today for not being the first European to travel to the New World, but for years he was still taught as having discovered America. Of course, it's hard to discover a land inhabited by millions of natives, but he wasn't even the first European. Leif Erikson gets that title, and he might not have even been the first. Now, Magellan is typically known as the first man to circumnavigate the globe, but of course he didn't. He organized the voyage that did, but he died well before the voyage was even completed. These days, most people give the credit to Juan Sebastian Elcano, who took command after Magellan was killed, but even that might not be accurate. Now, let's not lump Neil Armstrong in with these others, unless you believe that Stanley Kubrick actually shot the moon landing footage in a Hollywood basement and then made The Shining as his secret confession, we can all be pretty certain that Neil Armstrong was the first man to step foot on the moon. I mean, that's pretty huge. But it's his name that everyone remembers. Buzz Aldrin was there too. I mean, yeah, Armstrong did get that great line, but Buzz was one small step behind him. And what about that third guy? That guy that stayed with the ship up in orbit? Pop quiz, what's his name? It's Michael Collins. Now, I assume that you're all pretty smart people, so you might have already known that. But just to be safe, I had to Google it. His name is nowhere near as well known as Neil Armstrong. And what will that be like in 500 years? And what about all those other astronauts to walk on the moon? Ten more men did, but can you name any of them? I couldn't, not without the internet. 
So today, we're going to be talking about a group of seafarers who were, in some ways, the spiritual precursors to those lesser-known astronauts. Of course, those astronauts were patriots and heroes, while our band of pirates were... Well, they weren't. However, they did come after the great names. Our band of pirates followed in the footsteps of the most famous pirates, like Francis Drake and Henry Morgan, but they never quite found that same level of renown. They never got knighted, and they never got invited to dine with the king, or sit with the queen and share their exploits. But those are the stories I'm here to tell. I want to tell stories of outlaws and exiles. On this voyage, aside from a select few, none would find fame at the end of their voyage. They would find disrepute and capture and imprisonment. This is episode 40, The Sacred Hunger of Gold. The beginning of today's story coincides almost perfectly with the opening lines in the diary of Bartholomew Sharp. Captain Sharp begins his account thus, quote, That which often spurs men on to the undertaking of the most difficult adventures is the sacred hunger of gold. And twas gold was the bait that tempted a pack of merry boys of us, near three hundred in number, being all soldiers of fortune under command by our own election of Captain Coxon, to list ourselves in the service of one of the rich West Indian monarchs, the Emperor of Darien. End quote. I'm so glad that we get to start looking at Sharp's journal here. I'm just in love with it. Now, he might not be the most accurate chronicler of this voyage, but he's by far the most colorful and the most fun. William Dampier and Basil Ringrose were gentlemen, and it shows in their writing, but Captain Sharp, he was just a pirate. He was a real buccaneer. And like all of the best pirates, he knew how to play a crowd. He knew how to get people to love you, despite your villainy. Now, when we last left off our story of this pack of merry boys, their fleet was anchored off the Bocas del Toro, about fifty leagues west of Portobello. William Dampier had just uncovered what he called a Spanish prophecy, foretelling their doom should any corsairs attack their settlements on the South Sea. Today, that's what we call the Pacific Ocean. Naturally, when the crews and captains assembled there heard about this prophecy, they had to do everything in their power to make it a reality. Their fleet of seven or eight ships convened a council, and unanimously voted to attack the cities along the coast of the South Sea. Much like Henry Morgan had before them, they decided the best place to attack was Panama. It was the jewel of the South Seas. It was a ripe prize for any buccaneers, and at this point, attacking the Spanish main here at the Isthmus of Panama, well, well, it was becoming an English tradition. Back in 1573, Francis Drake had attacked that mule train out of Panama near Nombre de Dios. William Parker sacked Portobello in 1601, and in 1668, Henry Morgan had emulated that feat. In 1671, Morgan assaulted and burned the city of Panama. And now, a mere nine years later, the fleet of Captain John Coxon and Bartholomew Sharp and Richard Sawkins, well, they meant to do the same. They'd already sacked Portobello in that tradition, so why not, you know, raid Panama while we're at it? And they were absolutely aware of the historical significance here. Sir Francis Drake was a hero back in England, and to these English rovers he would have been like a legend. Following in those footsteps was an honor, and Morgan was no slouch either. Now, he might have gone legit back in Port Royal, but he was the most successful and famous raider alive today, maybe the most famous and successful ever. 
So those pirates knew what they were doing and what it meant, and with their crew of no less than five men scribbling down their exploits, well, it's clear they intended to join the ranks of those famous Englishmen. However, this crew would have to use different methods than their heroes. Drake had captured a mule train by stealth. He had ensured that no Spanish patrols knew he was there, and then when he was discovered, he waited for months for the heat to die down before he made his move. Morgan had marched on Panama in strength, in such strength that it was really more of an army than a company of pirates. Now, Coxon and his fellows, well, they couldn't do either. They'd attacked Portobello just a month earlier. The Spanish had sent reports to every settlement in the region. Everybody knew that the English were there. There would be patrols and soldiers on the ready in every city, especially in Panama, and they wouldn't be able to march in strength. Morgan had faced an army of thousands, and he had an army of his own. These pirates were less than 400 men, and they couldn't hope to storm the walls of Panama as Captain Morgan had. Plus, Morgan's route across the Isthmus, that fastest route, was surely being watched by heavily armed militias. So this smaller group of pirates needed a plan, and they sailed east to find one. Their fleet sailed for the region known as Darien, in the eastern part of modern-day Panama. Today, what they then called the Kingdom of Darien encompasses several different Panamanian provinces. The coastal region and the San Blas Islands there, just offshore, well, that's where the buccaneers landed. And that belongs today, much like it did then, to the Kuna people, or perhaps more accurately, the Guna people. Now, they're a fairly major part of our story here, so it's worth taking a look at them. The Kuna aren't indigenous to Darien. Back in the 16th century, Spanish conquistadors killed off the indigenous people living there, and the Kuna, well, they moved in. Now, Darien is a difficult land. In fact, it contains so many rivers and mountains and swamplands that its geography is prohibitive of building roads. Even today, it remains the single roadblock to completion of the Pan-American Highway. That's almost 40,000 kilometers of roadway, stretching from the frozen wastes of northern Alaska through desert and forest and jungle all the way down to the Straits of Magellan at the tip of Argentina. It would be the longest drivable roadway in the world, and in fact it does hold the Guinness World Record for that, but through Darien, you don't drive on a road, you put your car on a boat and ferry it across, because that's easier than building a roadway there. Now, the Kuna travel today, much like they did back then, mostly by canoe. Most of them live on either riverbanks or islands, so travel between their villages makes the most sense by water. They're also independent of the Panamanian government. While they are within the borders of Panama, they had a revolution back in 1925, and they, well, they hold to their independence and to their traditions. They still practice their religion and speak the Kuna language almost exclusively. Usually the only people that speak Spanish travel to Panama or are involved in government of some sort, but they don't speak it at home. But my favorite part of their traditions is, well, they have a higher average rate of albinism than the rest of the world. And the albinos in their society, well, whenever there's a lunar eclipse, no one is permitted outside except the albinos, and they have a very specific job to do. It's their tradition that lunar eclipses occur due to a dragon trying to eat the moon. During a lunar eclipse, the albinos among the kuna go outside and shoot ceremonial bows at that dragon to defend the moon. I mean, isn't that just awesome? Now, of course, this is all just tradition. 
The Kuna people belong to the modern world, but this is how strongly they defend their culture, and even today they practice that ritual. Now the pirates landed on Golden Island off the coast of Darien on Saturday, April 3rd, 1680. They were met there by a local Kuna leader who agreed to lead them to the king. His name was Andreas, or perhaps Andreas, but the pirates rarely called him by his name. In Sharp's account, he was called exclusively the Emperor. Now, Captains Allison and Maggot stayed with the ships, along with a skeleton crew, to defend their ships and secure a return home. The rest of the men, though, rowed ashore on Monday the 5th, and then they split up into several companies of around 50 men each. Now, as Admiral, John Coxon led two companies of men. He had his own men and then a combined force made up of Allison and Maggot's crews. Now, each of these companies flew a red flag as their banner. Captain Peter Harris had the largest force among the buccaneers, and so he split his into two companies under him, with a green banner. Captain Sharp led his company with a red flag covered by white and yellow ribbons, and Captain Richard Sawkins led his with a red flag striped in yellow. Finally, the last company belonged to Edmund Cook, who had a red flag with a hand holding a sword as the device. Finally, we get something that's reminiscent of a proper Jolly Roger. It appears, too, that Edmund Cook had the coolest company of the bunch. He probably had John Cook under him, along with Edward Davis and William Dampier and Lionel Wafer, and perhaps even Basil Ringrose as well, but he doesn't say. Now, all of these companies split up. They began a march inland to meet the King of Darien. They traveled mostly along the bank of a river, but early on that first day their progress halted. One of the pirates, while he was walking along the riverbank, saw a glint of gold in the water and jumped in to dig it out. He found a stone showing just a hint of gold dust and, well, the march was just ruined. The pirates all jumped in and they spent the day smashing open rocks and looking for gold. They'd found a bit, but to quote Captain Sharp, quote, We came to a watering place where we got drink, the river being salt. Here we stayed till morning, filling water, it being very dark and the mouth of the river wide, one branch of it coming from the golden mines, but having no chemist to refine the ore, we thought it best to go look for it where it was to be had with the king of Spain's arms on it, for we, like other children, loved pictures strongly. End quote. This proved to be a good enough place to stop and make camp for the night, so they collected their water and prepared for the march ahead. Once again, Sharp wrote, quote, Our last night's lodging, chambers and silk beds, being as much out of fashion here as they were in Adam's time, was nothing better than the cold earth covered by the starry canopy, which gave us but small encouragement to stay longer. End quote. So they continued their march up steep mountain paths and back down, until on April the 7th they came to a settlement. It was small, but much like today, the Kuna people live in small, widespread villages. The Englishmen were marched to the center of town, where they were met by the leader of the Kuna people. He wasn't named, but in their writings he was called chief, or general, or commander. But my favorite is Sharp's name for him. He called him King Goldencap. King Goldencap is awesome. All the chroniclers go into great detail on him. He wore a long white linen robe that covered almost his entire body, with only his feet and his hands and his head showing. Now this is notable, since all of the other Kuna people were wearing next to nothing. 
In his ears he had two great gold earrings and a half-moon disc of gold in his nose, probably in the septum. Now the nose ring, of course, is present in many indigenous cultures, but the kuna... Well, the kuna flag that they adopted in 1925 is a yellow and bronze affair, and on it is the device of a cross in the center. It's... Well, it's a, it's a swastika. Now, this doesn't have any connection to Nazism. It was, of course, adopted before Nazis existed. And the swastika is an ancient symbol in the Kuna culture, much like it is in many Hindu or Buddhist traditions. But when Hitler rose to power, they didn't want to give up their flags. So, they gave the swastika a nose ring because, quote, everyone knows Germans do not wear nose rings, end quote. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, King Goldencap was adorned with jewelry all over, but the focus of all of the attention, as you might imagine, was his crown, his golden cap. It was made of white reeds that were interwoven around his head. At the forehead, he had a great disc of gold, behind which he had stuck three ostrich feathers. Now, the whole crown was rimmed in gold beads, and it was lined in a rich red fabric. He carried also a lance with, quote, a blade as sharp as any dagger, end quote, as did his three sons. Now, they didn't wear any jewelry, but they had robes very similar to their father's. This lance they carried was the preferred weapon of the Kuna people. They used it for fishing primarily, as that was their primary trade, but they also used it in battle. From the time that they were young, boys trained with the lance. The older men would toss blunted sticks at the boys, and the boys were expected to knock the stick away with one of their own. The best men among the Kuna had trained so well that they could deflect two or three missiles at a time while running towards them. This means that in battle with other tribes, they could charge at them while deflecting their arrows, and they could make contact in force, wielding great sharp-bladed lances. They... Oh, they were basically Jedi, you guys... Now, of course, they used bows as well, and ever since the arrival of the Europeans, they'd become adept marksmen with firearms. Now, this meeting between the Kuna and the Buccaneers was not the first, by any means. The natives of Darien were well acquainted with all of the English and French pirates that frequented the area. Now, they traded often with them, and the Kuna even acted as guides, and sometimes even spies. And sometimes it went further than that. There was a period here where every ship carrying pirates or privateers or logwood cutters had on board a Kuna crewman. 
Now, primarily, their position on the crew was as a fisherman. Whenever a crew went ashore to collect water, the kuna would lead a group of men in collecting food. They were really skilled fishermen. They caught birds and sea turtles and manatees along with fish. And any ship that had a kuna crewman knew that they were unlikely to go hungry. However, whenever the pirates went ashore to raid the Spanish main, they would take that kuna crewman with them to act as a guide and a translator and oftentimes an emissary. Now, in 1910, the Werner Company published a text compiling stories about many of the great gentlemen adventurers. It included stories of Drake and Cavendish and Morgan and Dampier. It says of the relationship between the Kuna and the Buccaneers, quote, The Mosquito Men were kind and civil to the English, who endeavored to retain the regard of such useful allies. For this purpose it was necessary to let them have their own way in everything, and to return home the moment they desired it, for, if contradicted, there was an end of their services. They called themselves, as has been noticed, subjects of the King of England, and liked to have their chiefs nominated by the governor of Jamaica, which island they often visited." Now, there's some pretty big inaccuracies in here. First of all, he's talking about the Mosquito people instead of the Kuna people while talking about the natives that Dampier visited on the voyage with John Coxon. But I don't think any of them called themselves subjects of the English governor of Jamaica. Now, they may have had friendly relations with them. In fact, it is certain that the Kuna people did have friendly relations with the Jamaicans. But they weren't subjects, they were allies in in league against their common enemy, the Spanish. Now at this meeting, King Golden Cap and the pirates observed all of the niceties of anybody meeting a king, and then they began a sort of fair. They traded, and the men had the opportunity to bathe, and they feasted, and they got to drink as much liquor as they wanted. Every man had a drink, either of corn or cassava root, sometimes a banana or plantain beverage, all of them had a slice of sugar cane, which they were given to suck on, and many had a girl on their arm. As was so commonplace among Indian women at the time, the Kuna women were not shy when it came to sleeping with friendly visitors. And it was seen also as something of a blessing to bear their children, considering that they lived in such small communities, and, well, their marriage customs weren't prohibitive to having sex with multiple partners or having children of many different men. And a bunch of rugged, bearded, blonde-haired strangers arriving, and so many so that the women got to have their pick of the lot, well, I'm sure they enjoyed themselves as much as the pirates. Our chroniclers actually wrote at some length of the Kuna women and of their charms. They wrote, quote, They are tall, well-made, lusty, strong, and nimble of foot, black hair, and of a dark copper complexion, end quote. According to Sharp, they were, quote, tawny, but clean-limbed and well-featured, and are very obliging and affable, end quote. Ringrose called them free, airy, and brisk. But none of the Kuna women enraptured these writers so much as King Goldencap's daughters. They were described as beautiful and marriageable and mysterious. They had reeds and red linen strips obscuring their faces. They were the most desirable women among the buccaneers, and King Goldencap was happy to let them have their pick of the pirates. So the buccaneers spent a pleasant night there in the Kuna village. In the morning, though, they got down to business. 
Sharp and Coxon explained their position to the king, that they intended to attack Panama and to steal all of the Spanish gold they could find. The king, though, had a different plan. There was another settlement, much closer and potentially much richer. It was called Santa Maria, and it lay only a few leagues downriver. It was being used to store much of the raw gold brought up from the mines, and what's more, it was very lightly guarded. It was, according to King Goldencap, a much better prize than Panama. And then there was another factor. While the Kuna women might be free to take any lover they chose, they never chose Spanish men with whom they were at war. And the garrison at Santa Maria had decided to march up on the Kuna village and kidnap several of the local girls, including King Goldencap's eldest daughter. Ostensibly, they were being held as hostages against the Kuna's good behavior, but they were far from safe. They were prisoners in a Spanish military camp, and they suffered rape and mistreatment at the hands of the Spanish on a daily basis. So the Kuna king offered to send a raiding party of his best men to guide the pirates to Santa Maria and aid them in taking the fort. The pirates could keep all the Spanish treasure they found. All that the king asked was that they rescue his daughter and the other girls taken from the Kuna and bring them home. Naturally, the pirates agreed. On the morning of April 9th, they left the village. As they passed the last house, a woman handed every man a ripe plantain or banana or sometimes a cassava root. Then another woman would drop a kernel of corn to mark just how many men had come to their village. I imagine they did so as a way of remembering them when fewer men passed this way on their return. Now that first day's march was difficult. Captain Sharp said when they stopped to sleep on the green bank of the river that he wouldn't envy the poet in either his bed or his sensual pleasures. He said he would be too weary to enjoy either. But the next day the Kuna had canoes waiting for them. Now there were too many men to row this branch of the river all at once, so the company of pirates split into two groups. The second company headed off to another fleet of canoes on another branch of the river. But all of our chroniclers appear to have gone with the first branch, so we have no account of that second group. But John Coxon, Bartholomew Sharp, Basil Ringrose, and William Dampier were all in that same group. Unfortunately, though, traveling by canoe proved to be no better than marching. Every stone's throw or so, they were forced to get out of the canoe and carry it across a sandbar or perhaps up on shore to clear a fallen tree. Some of them thought that the trees were placed there by the Spanish to disrupt any traffic by water, and as things grew worse for the buccaneers in a few days' time, they began to believe that, well, we'll get to that. The next day, to quote Ringrose, quote, We prosecuted our journey all day long with the same fatigue and toil as we had done the day before. At night came a tiger and looked on us for some while, but we did not dare fire at the animal, fearing we should be descried by the sound of our fuses, the Spaniards, as we were told, not being at any great distance from that place. End quote. By the 12th of April, there was no small amount of grumbling among the men, and even fear. They had endured a difficult march. They were hungry and tired and sore, and now they'd been separated from their companions for three days. According to Sharp, quote, About four in the afternoon we arrived at the appointed place. 
but not finding our fellow soldiers there, who embarked the day before us as we expected, it created in us a jealousy that the Indians had thus divided us, the better to execute some treachery by the assistance of the Spaniard. The emperor perceiving, by our caballing and whispering among ourselves, that we had some cause of dissatisfaction, end quote. So Andreas, the emperor, their guide, ordered a few Englishmen to go with some of his guides back up river. After a few hours, that canoe returned, carrying some different men from the other group, and it appears he made the right decision. The men who returned were extremely glad to see their companions. The other group was near to mutiny. They'd grown so afraid that the Kuna had betrayed them somehow. If Andreas hadn't sent those pirates to reassure them, it might have turned terribly violent. The next day, the entire company, though, was reunited. They spent the morning telling each other tales and preparing for battle. They made sure that every man had a sharp blade, some ready shot, and a good store of powder. That afternoon, the Kuna rode the entire company of 327 pirates and over 50 Indians downriver to a sandy hollow about a mile from Santa Maria. It was well hidden, and it was dry. It made a good place to rest for one last night before battle. Come morning, they rose with the sun and made their last march. It was short, but it was difficult. The only approach to the fort that wasn't heavily guarded took them through waist-deep mud and swampland into a dense jungle. While on that march, they heard the discharge of small arms fire, but it was in a different direction. Likely it was at another group of Kuna, but they didn't have time to investigate. They were in the tree line at about noon, when the pirate's vanguard of about fifty men burst from the tree line. They were led by Captains Sharp and Cook, and they rushed the walls of the fort. Now this was a wooden palisade. It was basically a twelve-foot-tall fence of logs and tree trunks that were typically sharpened at the top. But it was manned by Spanish soldiers who rained down shot on the advancing pirates. The English, though, reached the wall, and apparently, using nothing but their own strength, they tore down a palisade log from the wall. This gave them enough room to pull down two more, which opened up enough space for the men to flow inside Santa Maria. With the walls finally breached, the vanguard was able to infiltrate Santa Maria Fort and occupy the defenders while the rest of the pirates marched on the fort. In a charge of the sort that the pirates had just executed, there wasn't usually time to reload your gun, so an attacker typically only got off one shot. It was likely that they did so either at the beginning of the charge or probably more likely while they were tearing down the palisade, so inside the fort the fighting would have fallen to swords. Imagine being that first man through the breach, a hole barely large enough to fit one man, and you've got a fort's worth of Spanish soldiers ringing the walls and all looking at you, and you have nothing but a sword and maybe, if you're lucky, a pistol. Quickly, though, the rest of the vanguard joined him, and the English engaged the Spanish in a sword-to-sword -sword fight, the vanguard wound up killing 26 Spanish soldiers and forced the fort's commanding officer to surrender. All of this before that main body of pirates even reached Santa Maria. Miraculously, though several of the pirates had taken wounds, not a single man was killed. This was, of course, too easy. The Spanish had received word, as they so often did, of the English force moving on them, and they'd taken the proper measures. A riverboat had taken the garrison commander and the priest and a few of the higher-ups, as well as all the gold bullion they could carry, 
and fled to Panama. However, all wasn't lost. While the commander had taken all the gold coins in Santa Maria, well, it was more than just a fort. It was also a mint, sort of a foundry for turning raw gold into Spanish bullion. They found, well, perhaps not the fortune that they'd been hoping for, but a respectable haul in gold dust and raw ore. So the buccaneers collected all of that and then set to looting the town. But in that, they found disappointment. It wasn't much of a town at all. It was empty, but it was clearly little more than barracks for housing the garrison. They did, though, find the other treasure for which they'd been searching. In the town, they found King Goldencap's daughter, along with the other young women that had been taken by the Spanish. They were bruised and they were malnourished. The skin had worn away from their wrists and their ankles due to the hemp bonds and shackles, and more than a few of them had dried blood at the corners of their mouths, but they were all still alive. While the women were being freed, the Kuna guides entered Santa Maria and found the pirates tending to the women. Now it's unclear what state the other women were found in, but the king's daughter was heavy with child, and she hadn't been pregnant when she was kidnapped. So the Kuna warriors took the women and girls into their care, but a few of them collected what was left of those surrendered Spanish soldiers. They'd already been bound by the pirates, and the Kuna marched them into the nearby woods. It seems that at this point John Coxon tried to stop them. The Spanish were, after all, now prisoners of war. This broke those Enlightenment-era rules of conduct in a good Christian society, but the Kuna were not Christians. They didn't follow those rules, and it was their daughters who had been taken and abused by the Spanish. So John Coxon failed to stop the warriors, and a short time after the Kuna left the garrison, the pirates heard the whoops of Kuna warriors and women, and the screams of their Spanish captors. Next week, we'll continue with Captain Sharp and Basil Ringrose and William Dampier. After the raid on Santa Maria, they needed to plan their next move, but a rift between captains nearly destroyed the entire expedition. Thank you to everybody for listening. After the storm and flooding that hit the Gulf Coast of Texas last week and the episode we did on storms in the Age of Sail, so many of you got in touch. Many of you who live in the affected areas let me know that you are safe and sound and dry, and many of you who live across the United States and across the world, well outside of the United States, let me know that you had donated to the Red Cross or one of the other charities in the region. To all of you, thank you. It was deeply moving and heartwarming to hear from all of you. As you may know, another hurricane, Irma, has struck the Caribbean and the United States. The effect on the United States was perhaps not as severe as was anticipated, but many areas are still devastated. The Florida Keys, the Bahama Islands, and many other islands in the Caribbean have been damaged terribly. Many of those islands don't have the resources to offer sufficient housing and food to people affected by the storm. To those of you who live in the affected regions, I hope that you are safe and that your homes and family are fine. And to any of you who don't, I urge you once again to keep them in your thoughts and prayers and consider them in the future. And a note to all of our Patreon supporters. 
The posters, which have been so long promised, should have arrived by now. Aside from a few of you who live outside of the United States, they all should have come by mail. If you should have gotten one and have not, please send me a note on Patreon and let me know. It turns out I'm terrible as a poster salesman and keep terrible records, but I'll get one sent off to you as soon as possible. I'd also like to mention that if you haven't been to the Patreon site in a while, we now have some bonus episodes up there. We've started releasing audiobook readings of the Buccaneers of America. If you'd like access to these special episodes, like our readings, our episode on pirate swearing, and our upcoming episodes on native tribes in the region, you can always join up at patreon.com slash piratehistorypodcast. For as low as a dollar an episode, you can get access to much of our special content. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I definitely suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can check us out or get in touch on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Let him live on in legend tonight.